1: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turn Your Hard Times Into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What Is Chen Buying and What Is Chen Selling? Chen is not taking new subscribers for the moment. Uh, if you are interested in... Uh, in signing up for Chen's letter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. Uh, it is a, uh, an extremely useful letter. I think a lot of people have found it to be an extremely profitable letter. Chen Lin has been an, an extremely successful investor who uh, simply takes his ideas and, and shares them with uh, with his subscribers. And, uh, and so there is uh, quite a demand. Uh, but if you would like to sign up at the beginning of the next quarter, April, uh first he will be taking new subscribers uh so i i highly recommend you consider doing that we'll have to get chen back on the uh on the show from time to time i haven't had him on that often lately but uh he and i both uh trade a lot of ideas uh, i share ideas with him that sometimes he picks up on and uh... And invest in and passes on to his subscribers and vice versa chen sends ideas to me as well that i oftentimes use uh... in fact in the refinery section right now i think uh... in the refining industry within the uh... within the uh, energy sector there are some extremely exciting ideas and some that i have recommended in my newsletter and some that i have also invested in personally um, you can sign up for my newsletter. Uh, I am, you don't have to go on a waiting list for my newsletter. Uh, it is, you can go to miningstocks.com and, um, and check out this, uh, you know, what I'm doing. is. uh, that's the website where you can learn more about what I'm doing. Probably the best place to go to, um, follow everything that I do is Jay Taylor Media. That's jaytaylormedia.com, and uh, we are starting to bolster that website. It's, I think, a more interesting place right now. You'll see who the next guests are on this show. Who uh, Well, there's a lot of uh, things coming uh, on that new uh, revised website, jaytaylormedia.com. Also, a lot of very interesting articles there that keep uh, feeding in there every day, and uh, I expect to be more involved with it personally uh, as well into um, in the near future as, as uh, we move forward. I might mention that one of the things that I pass on to my subscribers every week uh, called my Inflation Deflation Watch is uh, posted there, and there is an explanation uh, at jtaylormedia.com uh, of my IDW. It's at the right side. Click on the chart on the Inflation Deflation chart, and there is a fairly uh, extensive description of uh, my Inflation Deflation Watch, which, by the way, has uh, brokenness. Broken out to the upside. It, it suggests to me that we are in the early stages of a major breakout in terms of asset inflation. Um, that may or may not be true, and I'm going to uh, share some ideas from Richard Russell with you in just a couple of minutes with respect to that. Are we in a breakout mode or are we bumping up against the ceiling uh, in the equity markets and other markets? And could we be in some real danger of another market collapse? Well, there's certainly a lot of people uh some people out there who think so although the majority of people uh, the advisors are bullish right now uh, certainly the likes of Robert Prectory and Gordon uh... a gary Schilling and others that we've had on the show deflationists don't believe that that's the case i should uh... want to thank each of you for listening to this show making it the number one show on the voice america business channel and i also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable for the first hour of today's show our sponsors are brazil resources eurasian minerals dynacor gold mines golden arrow resource corporation miranda gold precipitate gold and renaissance gold um, let me just uh, pass on some of the ideas I mentioned. That uh, that Richard Russell, um, I wanted to share some ideas from Richard Russell. Richard Russell uh, is a. A senior member of the analysts, uh, any uh, group of analysts you want to talk about, he is at the top, in my opinion. Uh, he is in his uh, mid to late 80s right now, and he's still going strong, as strong as anybody that age I've ever seen. Uh, but his his mind is very, very clear, and he provides extremely valuable information. I just wanted to share with you some of the ideas that he came out with in his newsletter. Uh, this uh, was just yesterday, actually. Um, He's. Um, let me just go to Richard now. Um, first of all, he starts out with a quote from Ron Paul. And he said, Ron says that when the banking institutions need the money, central banks, whether it's the ECB or the Fed or the VOE or a new global superbank will print, print, and print. And then Richard starts out by saying, the central banks of the world are on a mission to keep the world economy going. A great bull market started in 1980. It's ended in 2007, a period of 27 years. As such, it was, a, it was in duration, the longest bull market in U.S. history. A bear market started in October of 2007. Bear markets tend to last for one half to one third as long as a preceding bull market. On that basis, the bear market that started in 2007 might be expected to continue for at least nine years, one third of that 27 or until 2016. In other words, uh, according to that standard, we do still have a, a couple, three, four years for, uh, left to go before the bear market is over that started in 2007. Some people, however, uh, Ian McAvoy, Ian Gordon, I think Robert Prechter as well would start, would really mark the bear market back to the year 2000 when the, um, uh, when the NASDAQ hit 4,000 and, and has never gained more than about half of that back. But be that as it may, uh, this, um, uh, bull market now that we've had Let's say, a cyclical bull market within a secular bear is long in the tooth. Um, but Russell continues on. he says uh, central banks and certainly President Obama have attempted to halt the bear market and this uh, and thus continue the prosperity we have enjoyed ever since World War II. A proof of the Fed's success, I would expect uh, both the Dow Jones transports and the industrial averages to advance to new highs, thereby signaling that the tide has reversed to bullish a bull market. Uh, of course, that's a standard Dow theory that Richard Russell espouses, and hence the name of his letter. Um, according to classic Dow theory, the primary trend of the market cannot be manipulated. Further, according to classic Dow theory, the movements of one average, unconfirmed by the other average, are useless unless um, uh, unless it, as guides to direction are more than likely to prove deceptive. So he says, so where does this all leave us? Um he says, we we are now waiting to see whether the industrial average confirms the transports by closing above 14,164.53. In other words, uh, we need to see that. And as I look at the Dow right now, it's at 14,022.04. So we've got another 140 points or so to go in order for the Dow to confirm the transports and hence under Dow theory to suggest that we are on to a bull market. Now, as I said a little bit ago, my inflation-deflation watch has broken all out uh, above a pennant formation to the upside, suggesting that we are in an inflation, an asset inflation phase. But uh, but the Dow itself has yet to really break out, and it it the Dow is in a pennant formation as well, a very interesting formation, uh, uh, and it it seems to be having uh, a difficult time breaking out. Um, Richard Russell, some more uh, remarks from Richard. He says, I read dozens of advisors and magazines. I read them all in the hope that somehow I can gain some early concept of coming events and all to no avail. Every day, many millions of words are written about the markets and the future. But the more I read, the more I realize that no one has the answer to tomorrow or to the world as it will be six months or a year from now. We might even possess some hidden or inside information regarding what's coming up but we never know how the markets will react to that news. Usually, it is the market itself that will provide the only reliable hints as to where the market is going. Of course, this entails our learning to read the market. But right now is not one of those times. For instance, I know that the U.S. is choking on debt. Everybody is aware of that that fact further i know that every nation's chosen way of addressing its debt problem is to devalue its currency thus the fate of the dollar is almost assured the dollar as a unit of purchasing power appears to be doomed really then why don't you just why don't i follow the lead of china and start getting rid of our dollars swap them out for currency and silver and gold the answer the frustrating answer is that um is that the business of money and investing, nothing is assured. Nothing is written in stone. That means that he uh, also serves who only sits and waits. So Richard is saying, yes, this is uh, one of those times when we have to think and sit and wait. And if you don't know what you're doing, don't do anything, or at least don't do anything stupid. Very few advisors are content to tell their subscribers to do little or nothing. For a while. When they don't know what to tell their followers, their advisors usually resort to presenting lists of stocks to buy. If those stocks decline, their advisors simply tell the readers that they bought the wrong stocks from the wrong list. I refuse to tell my subscribers to do something that I wouldn't do myself. So I say, have patience, let's just observe for a while. To tell you the truth, I'm excited and fascinating. Fascinated as I watch the markets unfold, will the Dow confirm the transports or won 't they? This is the trillion dollar question that only the market is uh, in good time will answer and only the market can answer. And then he points out that the Bulls are, are looking at the Dow thirteen eight fifty uh and you know they're they're saying, well this is pretty good news because it it can't it it's got strong support at thirteen eight fifty. Just give it time, it's going to go uh higher and we'll we'll be off to new highs. From the pessimist side though, Richard notes that there's uh they are the pessimists are noting that the Dow is never able to rise above that fourteen uh thousand, 15 level, which is the all time high and further he says that we are seeing too many distribution days when the money is going from uh you know uh, into uh, from heavy into the weak hands and lastly from a contrary opinion standpoint bullish advisors outnumber bears 2 to 1 well uh you know we we don't know as richard says you've got to watch the markets we can certainly have opinions uh, but you know everybody 's got opinions, and the market ultimately decides. I would like to just make one mention with respect to gold until I get on today to uh, today 's show uh, the The gold market um, is also uh, well it 's not in a pennant formation anymore it 's actually broken out of one. And, um, and this, this could be, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, um, that we could be seeing a, a sideways move for our, for gold for quite a while. We could see a downward plunge in gold. Uh, I did speak with Jimmy Rogers earlier this week and he will be on the show, uh, in, uh, on the 26th of February. Uh, but Jimmy sort of believes that, you know, he says we've had 12 years of bull markets for gold. I've never known a market to go up, uh, more than that, uh, uh 13 years in a row. Uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, Richard Russell is looking here in his, in his newsletter at GLD, which is a, a proxy for gold. Keep in mind, though, that that's a paper proxy for gold. It's not really the physical gold. And all that I'm hearing about the physical markets is that they are very, very strong. People want to take possession of gold rather than, um, uh, than own it uh, in GLD or some other uh, financial instrument. Let's get on today's uh to today's show. Uh the rule of law uh, is it giving way to political lies and economic ruin? Uh, two things, you know, as a kid that I had to learn in grade school. One was the beginning lines of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then we all had to say the Pledge of Allegiance back in uh, the 1950s when I was a kid in, the, in uh, the Dalton Elementary Public Schools. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of america and to the republic for which it stands one nation under god indivisible with liberty and justice for all well today we have two guests that i think help show that these ideals of liberty and freedom and justice for all um, are very much at risk our first main guest today is dana siegelman and um and then Frank uh, Vernuccio will be with me. But Dana, Dana's father, Don Siegelman, is the former governor of Alabama, was seen as a rising star in the Democratic Party and possibly a presidential candidate in 2004. The Bush administration indicted Siegelman in 2002 and then again in 2005. Dana will talk about the miscarriage of justice and, and uh, I think the defiance of the rule of law against her father when she comes on to talk to us. Uh, and uh, she'll also have some ideas of if you agree with uh, the plight of her father and if you care to help her uh, help her uh, help him, uh, perhaps uh, she'll have some ideas along that, um, along those lines as well. Not unrelated uh, to this personal miscarriage of justice are economic lies and propaganda committed against the American people by both major political parties. And although the Obama administration and Wall Street spin the U.S. economy in a positive light, uh, Frank Vernuccio, who will be with me at 4 o'clock, will explain why he believes Uh, our country and the middle class remain in an economic crisis mode and why we are not really being given the full truth with respect to uh, economic data. Crisis mode or not, we need to protect our wealth. So uh, Ken Cunningham of Miranda Gold uh, will update us on his company's efforts to outline uh, some gold deposits uh, in the western part of the United States and elsewhere. And before we get to our first main guest, though, I'm happy to tell you that Gene Epstein, uh, who heads up the New York City Junta organization, uh, which is something all of you, I think, who live in the New York City area should try to, to attend. Uh, he's going to be with me uh, just in a couple of minutes here after our first commercial break. Uh, I'm going to talk to Gene about the latest Junto last week, and I thought it was really an entertaining one, a really good one. And we're also going to ask him about a, uh, an article he's writing, which is the uh, Barron's feature article, the cover story for this week's Barons. Well, we do have to go to break now. Don't go away. When we come back, Gene Epstein will be with me.
0: America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold.
2: Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, minefinders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com.
1: Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. Four five seven one four two six, or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me once again Gene Epstein. And uh, Gene is, uh, as I noted, head of the New York City Junto. That's a, a group that meets on the first Thursday of every week in Midtown New York. And Gene usually comes on the Tuesday right before that meeting to talk about the next guest and the upcoming show. But we, I enjoyed the one last week so much, uh, and I, so I wanted, uh, I wanted Gene to come back on and talk about that and also talk about an article that he is uh, writing that will be the cover story on this week's Barron. So welcome Gene, really good to have you back. Good to be back. You know, I, I really did enjoy the last Junto, New York City Junto, and uh, the, your, uh, your main guest was uh, Ivan Eland, uh, and he, and he uh, has written, he talked about a book that he's written, No War for Oil. I mm-hmm. thought it was an excellent, uh, an excellent lecture. I look forward to having Ivan on my radio show. In fact, he's agreed to come on. We'll probably have him on sometime in the next several weeks. Oh, that's great. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but it was really, a uh, it, that was really good and enter, it, I think educational, but very entertaining uh, mm-hmm. was a debate that you had with Victor Niederhofer, who, mm-hmm. uh, finan- you know, he's the financier of mm-hmm. New York City Junta. Oh, he's got the money, as you say. Uh, you were arguing that there was a significant risk that long-dated treasuries could rise and that, mm-hmm. that could set off a, a financial bloodbath for an awful lot of people who are sitting there thinking they're in the, the safety of the U.S. Treasury markets. And Victor, uh, on the other hand, didn't see seem to see the risk. Would, would you care to maybe just talk a little bit about the debate that you and Victor had? Sure. And, and, but, but in a way, uh, my mistake was that uh,
3: I did indeed imply that the way you have just framed the debate was the way I wanted to frame it with Vic. Uh, I uh, believe that uh, there is a risk. That uh, interest rates uh, could rise uh, substantially over the next several years, but uh, that's beyond my pay grade. Uh, I don't. Uh, I write uh, for Barrons about the economy, and uh, I don't forecast uh, near-term interest rates to that extent. I do forecast the economy, which has some interest rate implications. But it's possible that interest rates could stay low for quite a while. I would grant that to a trader like Vic, who's got to put his money where his mouth is and who accused me of being from an ivory tower. Actually, <laughs> what I should have clarified um, is that I wasn't talking about uh, the next few years. I was trying to defend the argument of uh, for, of uh, former Libertarian uh, presidential candidate, Gary Johnson, that there are real financial risks ahead for the U.S. debt and consequently for the U.S. economy, and that these risks are going to kick in, not over the next 10 years, even though the next 10 years is worrisome. They will definitely begin to happen in about 20 to 25 years. And in combination with the real risk that 20 to 25 years out, interest rates could soar, uh, there could be a serious fiscal crisis in the US, and that fiscal crisis could have awful repercussions for the rest of the world. So what I was really arguing with Vic, but didn't frame it right, was that it's it's an outlook over the next twenty to twenty five years, and that Gary Johnson and I are correct in pointing out, along by the way, with the Congressional Budget Office, which is hardly uh, that uh, that driven toward scare talk, uh, that there is a risk that interest rates could go up to seven, eight, nine, ten percent uh, as the debt to GDP ratio climbs from its current seventy three percent of of GDP to over a hundred. Fifty percent and toward two hundred percent. By the way, Ireland—not not Ireland, but Greece—although Ireland has been in pretty bad shape too in that regard—but but, but Greece has taken the the record for an industrialized nation, at least a semi-industrialized nation, because its debt to GDP ratio was recently one hundred sixty percent. So we could exceed Greece, and uh, by exceeding Greece, um, our interest rates could soar, and really that was the only thing I was arguing with Vic, because Vic as a trader is not betting on what is going to happen to bonds over the next 20 to 25 years, it's just as, as an economist um, I have to point out that there is a real risk that all of those things can happen and that Gary Johnson was quite right to point it out and quite right to point out that no sitting president can, uh, can, uh, no responsible sitting president precedent, the president can afford to ignore that enormous risk because in order to avoid uh, that accelerating debt, you have to start acting now in terms of higher taxes, lower spending, or a combination of both. Actually, of course, I would argue mainly for lower
2: spending. Sure. Well, I mean, if you're talking 20 to 25 years, Gene, I suppose that a lot of presidents uh, probably figure that they can ignore it because, I mean, that's way beyond the time they're out of office.
3: Yes. Well, that's in the nature of uh, of our Ponzi uh, politicians. Uh, to kick the can down the road. Uh, the problem, uh, that anyone can appreciate of, of whatever, uh, political or economic persuasion is that what is driving, uh, the, uh, the time bomb is, uh, the, the demographic time bomb. The baby boomers, uh, are only beginning to stream into the ranks of the over 65s. Uh, by, it won't be until 2029 that all of the baby boomers will be over the the age of 65, and so their claims on the entitlement programs uh, are going to be such that the, that the budget could be driven into bankruptcy. The reason that's important to note is that the federal, unless the government starts acting now, it's going to start having to pull the plug on promises made to people uh, over the age of 70, and that's, that's to say the least, inhumane. Uh, the only way to start dealing with the problem is to start telling the 45-year-olds and the 50-year-olds that another deal is in store because 20 years from now we're not going to be able to afford these promises. That's the key reason why, uh, in in humane terms, why any president who understands the risks that the Congressional Budget Office keeps reminding us of, all all Obama has to do in preparation for tonight's State of the Union address is read the Congressional Budget Office's issue, issue brief of July 2010 called The Federal Debt and the Risk of a Financial Crisis, and he will see that something has to be done now, that, you have, that any government has to begin now
2: to avoid that clear risk. Well, he will see that. And a lot of wise people have understood that for some mm-hmm. time to come. Gene, I guess mm-hmm. it remains to be seen whether the parties, whether both parties, can come together and some sort of a deal can be arranged. I mean, there mm-hmm. seems to be so much dissension, so much opposition mm-hmm. between the Republicans and the Democrats these days. One wonders uh, if if these guys can can come to any sort of agreement to put our house in order again. I have to ask you this. You know, mm-hmm. I believe uh, I've heard, and you correct me if I'm wrong about this. You mm-hmm. you probably know better than I, but that mm-hmm. something like 60 percent of the 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 new money that is issued by the Treasury, the new the new debt that's issued by the Treasury, Mm -hmm. uh, is funded by uh, Mr. Bernanke printing his printing press. And if that's Mm -hmm. the case, then I'm wondering how we can go 20, 25 years if the Chinese and other creditor nations are slowly but surely opting out. Uh, what you said is quite true, uh,
3: and uh, m- and in fact, uh, my scenario uh, of 20 to 25 years is a rosy scenario. Uh, I'm just un- unwilling to stick my neck out and predict uh, what um, more intrepid uh, forecasters, perhaps such as yourself, might more accurately uh, point out is a fiscal crisis that could occur within the next decade. All of that is possible. Difficult to predict, but certainly... Uh, the fact that fifty percent of the debt is now held abroad, so much of it is in the hands of the Chinese um, all of those things are, are fought with risk, uh, and uh, indeed that so much of the debt is already beginning to be financed by the federal Reserve all of them very worrisome trends. The one thing that we can that we can f- be fairly sure of is that sooner or later there will be a fiscal crisis you
2: indicating that maybe sooner than later and you you may be right. No, well, it's not that we want it, but we. I think we need to be ready for what could happen. So, Gene, maybe you're going to help us uh, be ready for that mm-hmm. with your upcoming article. What What are you going to be writing about? You have the cover story in Barrons this week. Can well, you give us a bit of a preview. On basically,
3: that? yes, the cover will basically outline uh, numbers that I have uh, taken uh, from last week's uh, Congressional Budget Office ten-year projections that are actually pretty rosy. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office is in optimistic mode. Uh, I don't know if you noticed today, the New York Times headlined the story that uh, healthcare spending is is beginning to slow its growth. Well, that came from last week's Congressional Budget Office projections, and I've taken those projections at face value. I've grafted them onto the long-term projections of the Congressional Budget Office and and imposed substantial downward revisions on the numbers. Uh, I then took those numbers and I made a couple of assumptions. I said, what if... What if uh, the top uh, bracket were raised not to 39.6%, but to 50%? What if, uh, in other words, the marginal dollar, half of the marginal dollar of those earning 400000 400, or $450,000, depending on whether you're single or, or filing jointly, the marginal dollar were taxed at 50%, which is about as high um, as Obama would probably argue it should go, especially since most of these people live in. States where they also pay income tax uh, to, to the states and localities. So what if it went that high? Well, it wouldn't make much difference because, truthfully, the millionaires and billionaires don't have enough money to bail us out. I then added a further assumption. I said, what if, and the numbers were available on this, what if the Bush tax cuts were rolled back for all other income brackets, and everyone, including the middle class and 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 uh, and and lower income people, had to pony up more if, if the Bush Tax cuts were taken away from them. Well, that too might 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 slow the process. Slow the process whereby the debt to GDP ratio explodes. But it would only slow it by two, three, four years, not by very much. So mm-hmm. therefore, all it amounts to is that if Obama's vision of the future uh, has, has 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 to be paid for, it has to be paid for by uh, by taxing the middle class even more severely than 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 than, uh, than the Pre Bush era tax them, and that that of course is politically and practically impossible. So the only op- only option is to begin to cut spending. Now one hopes from all of this, uh, from all of this potential catastrophe, that awareness will be raised about our Ponzi politicians, about the Ponzi schemes that they play. Their willingness, uh, the willingness, especially on the part of Obama, to declare that all of these things can be paid for um, by just tax the rich, that a little bit of tweaking here and there will bail us out, but that otherwise uh, that he's being fiscally responsible. Uh, Now, uh, ultimately, hopefully, sooner or later, uh, people will begin to realize that these people, these Ponzi politicians, like Obama, cannot be trusted, and maybe that will help.
2: Maybe my story will help raise awareness of that. Well, let's hope so, Gene. Of course, I think there's one other option that you might not have mentioned that may be the one that the politicians, mm-hmm. uh, given the, their Ponzi inclinations, mm-hmm. might be uh, likely to adopt, and that would mm-hmm. be uh, to print. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that could yes. lead mm-hmm. to, to disastrous uh, consequences. It Absolutely yes. Uh, now uh, you
3: know you hope that uh, that you know the, that you know the Greenspan Fed. Uh, uh, oddly, I'm going to say something nice about Greenspan. although this is really of the Greenspan of the early 1990s, and the Volcker Fed, and even to some extent the Bernanke Fed, understood that uh, that you don't you cannot print your way out of a problem. That 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 way lies the the Weimar Republic of of the 1920s in Germany when uh, when when. Inflation hit uh, triple digits. It's it's simply no solution, and uh, hopefully there will be some awareness on the part of uh, of some of us, and even perhaps on the part of politicians, that there's only a limited degree to which you can resort to that one. But one way or the other, we should try to understand uh, that uh, that our politicians cannot be trusted. That we have to take power away from them uh, in order uh, to keep uh, some power for ourselves.
2: Yeah. Well, we, uh, we can hope, Gene, and, uh, thank yeah. you very much for coming great. on the show again. We'll be sure to read your Barron's article this week, no thank doubt you. about that, and then mm-hmm. perhaps I'll comment on it next week on the show. Great. But thank, thank you very you. much for being with us. I, I really appreciate yeah. it. Folks, That's don't great. go away. Coming up next will be Dana Siegelman. She's the daughter of Don Siegelman, who by all accounts is a political prisoner, not in some foreign dictatorship, but right here in America many think that we have a rising dictatorship problem of our own right here and uh, certainly if you hear the story you got to you've got to hear this story um, it is a very very important story because if you care about you have to realize that if there's a miscarriage of justice against one american that means that you're endangered for the same thing to happen to you so i think it's a very important message if a, a former governor of a state uh, of the united states can't get a fair trial and is a political prisoner. I think we've got some really big problems here uh, that go right along with what Jean was just talking about, the Ponzi scheme of our politicians. Uh, it relates to economics, it relates to our liberty and our freedom. So don't go away, I'll be right back with Dana Siegelman. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times, I am your host Jay Taylor and I'm really honored to have with me today Dana Siegelman. Dana is the daughter of current political prisoner Don Siegelman, a former Alabama governor and the only person to hold all of that state's highest elected offices, Secretary of State, Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor and Governor. He was one of the Southeast's longest serving Democrats until he was indicted by the Bush administration in 2002. Dana has a master's degree in international relations from the University of Cambridge and is pursuing a second master's in Middle East studies at the American University in Cairo. Dana continues to fight for justice in the case of her father and has been doing so for over five years. Her other passions include political science theory and Middle East relations with an emphasis on religion and politics. Welcome, Dana, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times.
4: Thank you so much, Jay, for having me.
2: Really great to have you here. You know, of course, we're going to talk mostly about your father uh, and the enormous, uh, seemingly enormous social injustice, really, against him, Uh, but... As I was reading your bio, I was thinking, well, there would most likely be a lot of other interesting things to talk to you about that would uh, be of a more happy subject, perhaps, than your father's imprisonment. Maybe some other time. You do have uh, other interests that, uh, things that I think, areas that I find very interesting. So, but in any event, we're here today to talk to you about your father. Um, Nothing would make you happier, of course, than if you could get your father freed. He, how how long has he served in prison?
4: He has been in prison, uh, well, he served nine months under President Bush. He was released unprecedented um, because 75 former attorneys general from across the country, both Republican and Democrat, came together and said this is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, what this man did was not a crime, has never been a crime, and if it is a crime, then all of us at every local, state, and national level, every politician should be in prison right now. Um, the fact that the Bush administration was able to target my father and have you know handpicked a judge and a. US prosecutor to go after him is something that shouldn't be possible in America but is. and I think that's why Dad's case um, is so important for the American people to understand because it isn't just about one man it's about all of our freedoms. it's about this continue, Continued prejudice that exists in our courtrooms today that has always been there. It has always yeah. been there. And, um, we've got to, we've got to put, I, I don't believe that we can purge people of their prejudices. I do think that we can put new laws into practice that can safeguard us against, um, future prejudices in our courtrooms. And mm-hmm. so I hope that's, I hope that's what this case does for our future. Um, right now, of course, you know, advocating for Dad to get out again, five years later, is something that I never thought I would do uh, or have to do. But I'm honored to do it, and I, I do feel that this case has a lot more to do with the American people, um, minority groups that are targeted by the criminal justice system, and um, and a, Dad being an advocate as he was for um, civil rights in Alabama, and being a part. Of that movement and being his voter base being almost entirely African American is one reason that he was targeted and um, successfully prosecuted by the Bush administration because the Republicans in the state of Alabama got on board um, with getting rid of my dad and so you know we have we we have an unspoken consensus within different political parties of you know these these watchdog groups looking for rising stars and and political threats, and, you know, I I don't want to point a finger at the entire Republican Party, because certainly hundreds of Republicans did step forward um, on behalf of my father, and so it gives even more credibility to the fact that this was uh, a wrongful prosecution when you do have so many Republicans saying that the Supreme Court should hear this case, which... They did not, which
2: is why my father is back in prison now. Right. Dana, I want to ask you, so he's he served one year. He has six to go, is that right? That
4: is correct. About okay. five years, nine months.
2: Okay. All right, let's get into your story, the, your father's story, a little bit. In 2002, your father was elected. He was first elected governor of the state of Alabama. But then the, the people of Alabama were denied their voice as he was denied his apparent victory. Can you tell our listeners about that?
4: Well, he had been governor from 1998 to 2002. He was running for re-election He won oh, okay. re election. Yeah, so he won that. He won that campaign. He was announced governor that night. Went on stage and thanked everyone. We went to bed, and then the very next morning, his opponent, um, Bob Riley, came forward and said, "No, actually, I won this election." What's so interesting about this is the fact that. <clears throat> No other votes in any other precinct for any other candidate in any other race were changed. Just the governor's race in just mm. one county, Baldwin County. Just enough votes were switched to give Bob Riley the win. And when my dad asked for a recount in this Republican county, for some reason, you know, after midnight, when everyone should have gone home, someone shifted the votes in this one county. And my dad mm. asked for an investigation, asked for a recount, And the attorney general, uh, Bill Pryor, said, "If anyone dares recount these votes, they're going to prison." Well, my dad didn't want to go to prison, Um, (laughs) so he he basically conceded the election and said, "I'm never going to win this in court. We only have Republican, you know, Supreme Court justices in the state. I know that they're going to decide, much like they decided in the Gore versus Bush um, decision." for uh, my opponent so it's really a big waste of everyone's time and our on taxpayers money and that's really what he was concerned about is the fact that you know if he brought this trial if he contested this election he would be wasting everyone's time and money so he promised to run again Um, in 2005 they brought an indictment against him for bribery um, on trumped up charges most of the charges were thrown out as they as they do in, in many cases, not just my father's. In many cases, you know, they trump up charges, they throw as much as they can at the jury and hope that something sticks. In mm-hmm. this case, the jury did not want to convict my father of bribery. The judge allowed them to infer that a bribe took place. The judge basically said, give me a verdict. After nine days of deliberation, just give me a verdict or I'm going to keep you here till next July. He lowered the standard of law so that the jury could get a verdict on bribery, except they couldn't call it an explicit quid pro quo. They had to call it an implied quid pro quo. That's Mm. a deferred bribe or a bribe Uh. without explicit proof of an agreement or a self-enrichment scheme. That means neither party benefited. There was no accusation of benefit on my father's part. He never pocketed a penny. But it didn't matter because the judge knew that he had to get a conviction on this case if he was going to receive hundreds of millions of dollars and defense contracts for his personal business because he owned a defense company that provided soldiers uniforms in Iraq and Afghanistan and refueled planes and trained pilots and anyway he did receive those contracts a couple of weeks after my dad was convicted Um, so what you have is a judge, a a George W. Bush appointed judge who was appointed in 2002 the same year my dad supposedly lost this election and was allowed to preside over the case even though he was benefiting financially and personally from the particular administration that appointed him and siding on that side of the US government against my father.
2: That's that's incredible. So so this judge, the judge what was the judge's name again?
4: The judge is Mark Fuller. He should have never been a judge. He, he, there's all sorts of accusations against him, that he abused drugs. He was having an affair with the law clerk for five years, that he abused his wife. Um, and he did go through a divorce during this trial. He was accused of all those things by his wife publicly to the newspapers. Um, he was under investigation as district attorney for corrupting the district attorney's office. The fact that he was even appointed to be a federal judge and then allowed to preside over the case of someone that he had run campaigns against Mm. for 10 years in Alabama. So this man, Mark Fuller, had actually been on the executive GOP board for the state of Alabama, which is totally responsible for running campaigns against the Democrats, my dad Mm -hmm. being the number one Democrat in the state, was obviously their number one enemy. And um, so the fact that this GOP judge would be allowed to continue his business and defense contracts with the Bush administration, even after being accused of corruption and having lost that case in the court and then preside over the same person that he had run campaigns against, is absolutely outlandish. It's hard to yeah. believe that people didn't have a problem with that
2: it's hard to believe that the Supreme Court didn't agree to hear this case what what was there I mean I guess they don't have to say they just throw it back to the appellate court
4: well they actually could not offer a comment and the reason being is because they they actually avoided their own standards for what for how they decide to hear a case so when when you want to hear a case you have um, some political um, Fire behind it, meaning that it, it affects more than just, you know, one person and their politicians, uh, that are advocating for the Supreme Court to hear the case. That's, that's why so many of, um, the decisions have to do with, uh, the president, um, because these are big decisions that affect a lot of people and they either hear the, hear cases based on recommendations from politicians, uh, you know, top constitutional law scholars, um, or they hear decisions that have split decisions in the lower court system. Well, in my father's case, he had top constitutional law scholars such as Erwin Chemerinsky, Daniel Farber. I mean, these are the people that wrote the textbooks that the law students study in college. Um, He had 113 former attorneys general write to the Supreme Court in an amicus brief asking them to hear this case. These are Republicans and Democrats that mm-hmm. are the the state's lawmakers, the ones that you know uh, are in charge of prosecutions within their own respective states. They're asking the Department of Justice to find out what happened at the federal level. Why the federal level isn't working when the, when they know at the state level this would never happen. Why well, at the federal level it was allowed to happen?
3: Mm-hmm. Republicans
4: and Democrats. On top of that, there were lower decisions. Not only. At the appellate court level, but also at the district court level, so that the other judge, the other federal federally appointed judge in the Middle District of Alabama, the one that could have heard the case, would have decided that this was a ridiculous case and would have thrown it out. Actually, wrote Mm -hmm. a statement um, not directly about my father, but in a general way, saying that that would have been the case that this implied quid pro quo business, um, you know, can't be consider a crime because then everyone would be guilty, as we mentioned Damn. before. Um, and the appellate courts uh, in Atlanta that you know my dad was appealing to also had a split decision. Three judges thought this case had to, uh, substantial questions of law, in fact, likely to result in a, in a reversal. Those are their words. When my dad showed up for a hearing, it was three different judges. The most conservative in the court who said who upheld the conviction and said no, he did commit a crime. So you have a split decision, not only at the appellate level, but also at the district level. And then the Supreme Court says, yeah, we know that this is a big problem, but we don't want to hear the case. And they uh, they offered no comment and sent it right back to Judge Fuller, who threw my dad in prison uh, this past September 11th, the day when the national press would be obviously looking elsewhere, um, for the news since it was a day of national security concerns and our embassies were being attacked abroad and ambassadors were being killed. So, you know, my dad was not uh, on the forefront of the American mind with, on the day that he returned to prison, which is why I decided to, to pick up this torch again and run with it because I was so angry and frustrated that, that this happened again. It's just, it's, it's blasphemous and it's not American. And, um, For us to not have safeguards against something like this for a governor scares me tremendously because we have people in this country going to prison every day that don't deserve to go to prison that have been wrongly targeted or wrongly convicted, which are two separate issues. You know, you can be targeted because the prosecutor doesn't like you, and then you can be wrongly convicted (laughs) because the judge doesn't like you. So you've got a lot to deal with in this country if we're going to protect our citizens.
2: Absolutely. Uh, well, you certainly. Uh, this seems like it's 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 a big deal. I mean, it really is. Something's going on here that's 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 really that doesn't meet the eye. It would seem to me, and 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 most certainly, the president of the United States would have the would have the ability to uh, to pardon your father. Is that a possibility?
4: Well, we we know that the White House is on our side, and that is a beautiful thing to to have. Now, um, unfortunately, the president is not going to move for clemency, not just for dad, but for any person deserving of it, without the recommendation of Attorney General Eric Holder and the pardons' attorney, who is being investigated at the moment, um, not by the president, but by a separate entity in Congress. Um, From what I understand, the pardons' attorney hasn't been doing his job at all. This is a Bush carryover. This is someone who was appointed by George W. Bush. And so is the Deputy Attorney General David Margolis, who... You know, probably I shouldn't be calling out since he's the one making all the decisions and he already hates my father. But the point is, having people that are the same people that originally decided on a prosecution 10 years ago, that means David Margold's stamp of approval was on this prosecution, even though there are blatant levels of misconduct is the same person advising a pardons attorney 10 years later on whether or not this person should be up for review, whether their case should be reviewed, whether their case should be pushed to the attorney general and given to the president for a pardon or for commutation of sentence. The fact that the same person can decide who gets justice and who doesn't is is absolutely ridiculous, and there's got to be better checks and balances than that.
2: Absolutely. Dana, we only have about four minutes left and there's so much more to cover here, so much more uh, information. I'd like to try to understand the politics of this a little bit. I mean, why... What did your father do? I know that I saw a, a clip. I think he was on a, on a television show, probably after his part. After he was, uh, uh, after he was left out, uh, he seemed to think that maybe he said some things uh, with respect to George W. as being sort of a lightweight intellectually. I think was the way it was uh, maybe framed that he was a personable fellow, but he wasn't very much of a, you know, he did a, he, he he wasn't an Einstein, uh, so to speak, uh, and and that may have gotten into into some trouble but there's also some connection is there not with Carl Rove who was involved in uh, in politics or as an advisor to somebody running in the Republican Party in in your state
4: yeah so before we go I just want to tell your listeners to go to free-don.org just google free don d-o-n free don sign the petition that I have up there to the To the president asking him to to investigate and to pardon my father but there are videos and clips and articles that you can read more about this uh in answer to your question yes there were two whistleblowers that came forward after my dad was already sentenced and the case was closed that said that coral roe was involved that told about misconduct within the u.s attorney's office and uh it wasn't until then that we that we put the pieces together, but basically my dad was touted as a possible dark horse candidate for the 2004 presidential Mm -hmm. election, and because of that, he became sort of this target with a bullseye on his back for Karl Rove, who was the watchdog of the Republican Party and whose job it was to get rid of these people, but Karl Rove had run campaigns against my father. In Alabama for the past decade, he, he had been working in and out of Alabama for 10 years with Bill Canary, the same person who was the campaign manager for my dad's opponent and whose wife, Laura Canary, was the U.S. attorney who brought the case against my father. So it isn't so much of a, you know, conspiracy theory as it is a blatant, uh, uh, uh connection of misconduct and, you know, when something looks that bad, even if there isn't misconduct, you know, you've got to have, you've got to have some ethics that say, I'm going to step down from this case. We're going to bring in a new U.S. attorney to prosecute because mm-hmm. the next thing that I have against this person. Yeah, it's a. So.
2: Uh, it it's it's just uh, I don't know it's it's really hard to know where to start with this although uh, I think that people should go to I I know that uh, freedon.com I know I've I've uh, noticed a number of things on the internet there's quite a bit of uh, of coverage of this uh and so people if they go to freedon.com can can sign a petition uh and that certainly is one place to to start uh, i think Mar- people really have to realize as as you said Dana that um you know uh, misjustice for for one is is, uh, is is an injustice for all we are all threatened and i and it just seems to me incredible that a governor of a, of a state in the united states could be treated this way it's just uh you know unless i'm missing something here um, you know, politics has gotten to the point. I mean, he did nothing wrong. I, I guess if we we've got another minute, my engineer says real quickly, what was he accused of? Just go over that once more. He it was it was supposed to be bribery or something, not, sort of an implied bribery.
4: Yeah. So usually, when you have a bribery charge, you have a tit for tat. That means someone is uh, is given something in return. For instance, right. in the Bush administration, he appointed 136 political contributors. Those are people that gave money to his presidential campaign. Two paid positions within his administration, six of which, which were crucial foreign intelligence positions. Fast forward, my dad was already governor, never received a penny for his, before his, before the governor's race from this person. who contributed to an education referendum campaign, a campaign that my dad happened to be championing, something that my dad wanted passed in the state of Alabama. My dad didn't receive a penny, then reappointed this person to a non-paying board. That's a non-paying board on which this person had sat for 12 years under three other governors because why? He was the best person for the job. So my dad reappointed Mm -hmm. a Republican who didn't support him politically, but did support a referendum campaign, Mm -hmm. under which neither person benefited. You know, this guy didn't get paid for the Mm -hmm. advice that he gave on the
3: board, Mm -hmm. the
4: Mm -hmm. board, and my dad didn't receive a penny from this person. Had was already elected governor and just reappointed him to a position he had already served on for twelve years. So there's blatant uh, hypocrisy, a double standard, whatever. (laughs) In our judicial system that says a president can get away with whatever he wants, the lawlessness is, you know, it's obvious at this point. Yeah. We all know that the government gets away with whatever it wants. But when it comes to people they don't like, or if, if there's a watchdog situation as there was in Alabama with Carl Rose, sort of giving the uh, okay, you know, to the Department of Justice, sort of a winkly mm-hmm. said judge, mm-hmm. go after this guy, we're not going to do anything about it sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a double standard
2: well, there sure is, uh, Dana. Unfortunately, we're out of time, folks. Go to freedon.com, freedon.com, and and check this out. Uh, I think you're going to want to try to help Dana and her father because if you do that, you're also helping to to try to protect the freedoms uh, and the due process that we're supposed to have in this country. So, thank you very much, Dana, for being with us today. I look forward to tracking your story and your father's fate as we go forward. Thank you so much, thank folks. You. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back. Uh, We're going to be talking to Frank Vernuccio, and, uh, you know, I think that you're going to see the connections between some of the things we just talked about with Dana and uh, the lies and uh, the half-truths that are being given to us in uh, in the economic sphere. So don't go away. We're going to be right back with Frank Vernuccio. When it comes to business,
0: you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over 15 million dollars on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate and holds 43 million dollars in cash, creating value through discovery, growth and royalties. Eurasian Minerals.